sometimes those places lend themselves much better to, to other emerging markets being perhaps you know the larger part of the world right so if you invent a solution around cash and delivery then you're a lot more able to penetrate you know all of africa a lot more so than let's say uber in the us that's building for not the lowest common denominator but kind of the more premium market welcome back to the global startup movement where every week we bring you conversations insights and innovation highlights from emerging startup ecosystems all around the world. I'm your host, Andrew Berkowitz. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today, I am joined by the author of the new book, Ecosystem Arabia, Amir Hagazi. Amir was formerly the director of Marketplace at Souk.com, which is really one of the big startup success stories in the Middle East region, having been acquired by Amazon back in 2017 for $580 million in cash. Amir's previous book, Startup Arabia, was an Amazon bestseller, and his new one goes even deeper into the Middle East and North African startup ecosystems and features contributions from people like Kevin O'Leary, Steve Case, Brad Feld, and yours truly. So let's get right into it. Amir, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. And uh, thanks for being one of the valued contributors in the book. Uh, So uh, grateful for that. I appreciate it. He um, put me right next to Kevin O'Leary. With all the sharks on Shark Tank, I resonate with him the most. So wonderful. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) exactly. Really appreciate that. But tell us a little bit about your story from your time at soup.com and how that, you know, how you got into this whole startup world. It started in 2014. I got recruited by Ronaldo Mushauer, the founder and CEO of Souk. He's definitely one of the, the most brilliant entrepreneurs in the, in the region. So I came in early to help launch the marketplace, which, uh, you know, when I started, there was a small team and eventually grew that uh, business to about 200 uh, staff or so, you know, basically accounted for a, a large portion of the business. So it was... An amazing experience. I was in charge of, you know, everything from uh, the entire third-party seller platform. So everything from seller acquisition, seller relations, seller management performance, both on the technology side in terms of managing the, the platform and the tools, and then also on the ma- kind of the management and operation side with the staff and so forth. Uh, so the neat thing about Souk, which kind of helped trigger a lot of my interest in, in entrepreneurs, is that just, just by virtue of being a, a platform, a third-party platform, empowering entrepreneurs and merchants and, and, and uh, you know, all kinds of uh, businesses to sell on our platform, it, it kind of gave me an insight into that world, right? And into how can you help and get more on board with the digital world. We had a mantra at Souk, like an inspirational mantra, which was make history, right? So we saw our position as a way to kind of set the bar high in the region and prove that in fact, you know, a world-class startup can start in the Middle East and, 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 and scale up. We didn't know how this would play out, whether it's going to be an IPO or an, an exit of some sort, but we knew that we had, we were kind of the lead horse into taking a locally grown on, uh, startup into a, you know, the world-class or, or, or world arena. And that was a big motivation for us. And obviously, eventually, Souk, uh, which operated in, in the Middle East and in multiple countries, has you know was acquired by Amazon for around six hundred million in two thousand and seventeen. And instantly, you know, just being part of that team, I I was inspired and I felt like this story needs to be told. You know, looking around, 
I realized it's not, it's not just Souk, there are other success stories in the region. Uh, so that was the inception of my uh, previous book, which is called Startup Arabia. Uh, you can download it on startuparabiabook.com. It's, it's available also on Amazon. And it featured 22 of the top tech entrepreneurs in the Middle East and North Africa region in different sectors, from different backgrounds, in different countries. Uh, so I tried to present uh, kind of like a local narrative, success narrative that would resonate with local entrepreneurs, which I felt may not always necessarily relate to, you know, the, the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world. And they needed some, someone local they can relate to and who's kind of walking in their shoes and kind of help them gain insights and inspiration that will help them go to the next level. So that was a startup Arabia. And that was around 2018, 17, 18. So since then, I was, I, I've obviously been advising a lot of entrepreneurs in the region, but also working with international companies, a lot of the tech startups around the world, some of the innovative ones in, in different sectors, you know, from telemedicine to e-logistics, to e-commerce, uh, online education, uh, hospitality industry, even smart cities and, and a host of others, into helping them understand the region and providing a strategic advisory support, business development support, and help kind of unbox or demystify uh, the, the region for them. Simultaneously, I was working as an advisor for some of the governments in the region around e-commerce and, and, and tech sector uh, initiatives and policy making. So all in all, just being in Souk, in a startup, you know, advising startups, working with international companies and, and governments, it gave me sort of this kind of 360 view into, into the region and into the ecosystem. And it made me realize, A, how much effort is being, is being created and how much progress is being made, but also how fragmented the knowledge is. And I feel there wasn't mm -hmm. a unified place where people can go to and understand what's happening from different perspectives, both the challenges and the opportunities. Uh, so that's kind of been the, the genesis of Ecosystem Arabia, which I felt I couldn't, have, I couldn't do it alone. I just like an ecosystem, it's a collective effort. And that's kind of the approach I took, which is get the most brilliant uh, practitioners and, and thought leaders into one book and, and really see what they can and then try to present something that's, that's organized and, and cohesive. So it featured, the book features around 120 experts and practitioners, uh, about 40 global experts, like you mentioned, Brad Field and Kevin O'Leary and Steve, Steve Case and Ali Cross and, you know, just some of the, the most brilliant and seasoned folks and, and then also some of the most entrenched uh, entrepreneurs and policymakers and incubators and accelerators in the region with the goal that this will provide both kind of like an ecosystem development case study on some of the kind of best practices and, and do's and don'ts and so forth, but also shed light on, on the region from an outsider perspective and help kind of, you know, any global investor and entrepreneur that's eyeing the region to understand, you know, what's happening in this region, kind of give them some clues on, on, on taking the next steps, if that's something they're really uh, interested in. Uh, so the book has been out for a month. Um, it's also, again, on Amazon, and you can download it on Ecosystem Arabia. I decided to, ecosystemarabia.com, I decided to actually make it free, given the crisis, which I more, even more, 
uh, I feel more compelled to do that now. I feel it's, you know, <clears throat> in a time of crisis, the weaknesses in any ecosystem get exposed and it's, it's even more urgent to develop the ecosystem and address some of the challenges more than ever. Um, so that's where I am today. And, and Andrew has been, um, you know, I've been a big, big fan of the show. So much like what you've done with, with the show, aggregating a lot of different experts and providing kind of a global perspective. I'm honored to be here. Well, no, it's it's great to have you here. And I mean, I love, I mean, th this book is fantastic. I mean, it's, it really is my new go-to guide for the region, just because like you said, there's, there's within any given ecosystem, there's always kind of a political dynamic between all the different stakeholders. And so you have the policymakers, academics, operators, politicians, investors, and they're all a part of the ecosystem, but they're all approaching it from a different lens, a different perspective. And I think your, your book does a really good job at, at painting the entire picture. So I think uh, you did a fa fantastic job with it, uh, actually inspiring me. I'm, I'm thinking about what does, what, what, what does my book look like? So definitely appreciate that. One thing you mentioned there that I want to start off with, because I think before we dive into like really the, the meat of like, what are the opportunities in the region right now? Like we have to set some context. So what you said, what you said was soup.com, the question of what does an exit look like? I think is a question that is very, um, people don't talk about it enough in these, in these markets. Because when you look at Africa, Middle East, Southeast Asia, Latin America, I mean, there's, there's no IPO market. There's no IPO market to, to get liquidity that way. And so on the other hand, if you're looking for an exit, most countries, the local corporates only have so much you know, market cap to deploy into, into making acquisitions. And so something like, souk.com in the region like if if amazon or like a big outside tech player didn't come in to make that acquisition like what would the acquisition landscape have looked like for you all and like how much cash realistically could like a bank or someone actually deploy to, to make a, a meaningful acquisition yeah i mean obviously that's i would speculate because that's i wasn't there specifically for for the for the exit decision making however um, it, there was an offer from uh, a, uh, a big retail group and a real estate group. They own Dubai Mall uh, called MR Group, and they now invested in a competing company called Noon, Noon.com. They, they actually made a bigger offer. They made a, something around 800, uh, 800 million. But Souk actually preferred to go with Amazon, giving the know-how and the expertise. So it's not just a question of, of how much capital being available, but can this, this new kind of parent if you will, take the company forward? Do they have the know-how and the expertise? And, and that's kind of a challenge because a lot of those, to your point, these incumbents, they're more traditional and not as uh, well-versed into a, a globe, you know, a technology innovative kind of space. And then it, it, it also addresses a point, which is one of the challenges in the region that, you know, there is a huge drop at, at some point in terms of funding, you can raise the first 10 million, maybe 20, maybe 50 at some point. Okay. You know, you're going to go global and then there's like nothing in the region. You dry out. So I think it, it's, it's a question of funding, but also a question of know-how and expertise and, and leveraging a global brand, mm -hmm. uh, Amazon. Well, also I think, you know, it's a question of being intentional about engineering an exit. So if you think about building a startup in Tunisia or Morocco, and like you have to be very, very intentional in the early stages about what your exit strategy is. Because if you plan to go across the entire region, 
and, and get acquired by Google, Facebook, Amazon, one of these big tech companies, then you, then you can raise some Series A, Series B capital at a valuation that is you know, in, in the tens of millions. But if you're looking to build something that you engineer to locally exit to a, a Tunisian bank, a Moroccan bank, you have to be conscious of like, what is, what is the market size? And, you know, instead of raising a million dollars at a $20 million valuation so that you can get acquired for 200 million, you need to be thinking about, well, maybe I should raise $200,000 at a $1.2 million valuation because we're only gonna, it's only possible that we get locally acquired for like maybe $20 million, right? So I think that's something to be, we need to talk about more because the, the, yeah. the Silicon Valley copy and paste VC model just doesn't work in these markets. Yeah, and, and you mentioned something really interesting earlier also, which is that uh, there's no pathway to a public market, right? It's, there's, when, there's only been one company actually, it's called Fowry, online payment uh, platform out of Egypt that went public. How'd that go? How'd that go? Um, I think, I mean, I haven't, it, it's been going well initially. I haven't followed recently, but uh, it's interesting to know that, you know, of all the companies, right, right, even there was Kareem, which was acquired by Amazon, I'm sorry, by, uh, by Uber for 3 billion. They, there was no pathway to that. There's no, mm. it doesn't really, uh, the, the markets are too restrictive for that sector. It's, you know, it doesn't still, doesn't it? account for that uh, type of companies, right? That whole asset class, it makes it uh, more challenging, but hopefully Fowry can kind of set the stage. And, and, and I think there's a lot more awareness of the tech sector in general and, and startups and the nature of startups, right? It's not traditional real estate play or, or, or uh, banking industry, which is, you know, common successful industries in the region. It's obviously have its own kind of dynamic and it requires a lot more kind of risk capital, if you will. Hmm. I agree. To be honest, man, one of my takeaways during this introspective lockdown period, for sure, is the fact that I think, you know, startups, startups is one piece of the conversation. But in these markets, it's it's that needs to sit within a broader ecosystem of conversation, especially when you look at sub-Saharan Africa. I mean, it's it's similar in North Africa, maybe a little bit less relevant in some of the more wealthy GCC countries. But it's like, hey, you know, build a coffee company. Build something that's that's practical. That 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 isn't just about you know this Silicon Valley VC, hundred X get the exit. It's like you know what can you? It's more of a narrative I think that needs to be painted of entrepreneurship. So that's one thing that I've been thinking about a lot, a lot of you know where the show needs to go, where the conversation needs to go. So so yeah, I mean what what you said there certainly resonates with me. But why why don't we why don't we transition into kind of more of like the demographics and like the dynamics of the region. So like you have North Africa, you have the GCC countries, right? Can you talk a little bit about maybe the disparity between those two, those two different ecosystems? Yeah. So there's actually, when you think about the MENA region, um, which is specifically the Arab world for the, for the purpose of the book. So it doesn't include like Iran and so forth, but it's, com- it's comprised of three sub region or sometimes they say four, but the main ones are North Africa, and then the GCC, the Gulf region or sub-region, and then the Levant. And there's about 400 million population-wise. And interesting enough, it's, uh, you know, two-thirds of the population is under 30. So it's a very young demographics. Obviously, the oil-rich countries in the Gulf are some of the, wealth, the wealthiest countries in the world. So there are a lot of purchasing, high purchasing power there. Uh, very, by virtue of being young, and there's a culture of uh, 
being heavily uh, tech savvy uh, online and social media users, right? So there's all the dynamics of, uh, of a kind of tech world, uh, both from a consumer standpoint and also given the, ge- the younger generation also being hungry to start up their own kind of ventures. Part of that also is because there's just simply not, you know, too many folks coming into the workflows, to, to, into the workflow uh, force and not have enough jobs lined up, right? So there's a, by according to different estimates, there's around 100 million unemployed youth in the region, right? So there's a big push by, by governments, uh, by everyone to try to kind of get them to do their own thing. So that's, that's one of the drivers. And actually in the book, uh, I came up with a framework. I call it Market Attractiveness Index, where there's metrics. Uh, I came up with 10 metrics. Uh, you know, it's uh, just, and it, it applies to the region, but it applies anywhere in terms of, you know, you're an international business think, or an investor thinking about the region. How can you evaluate, or, or a particular country or a market, you know, how can you evaluate the sustainability in terms of the opportunity lined up in that part of the world. So there is, you know, for example, I have things like readiness in terms of, you know, the presence of micro and macro trends in that part of the world that lends itself to successful entry, traction, whether a similar business such as yours or or has been proven, uh, things like um, transferability, how, how readily... Can you take what a product or service you created and make it adapted to that part of the world? So there's different metrics I came up with. And, you know, I tried to do some, some assessment for the region as a whole. Uh, obviously, it varies by country. It varies by, by sector. And my conclusion was that the region has about a medium-high attractiveness index. You know, it's about medium or high across all the, almost all the different categories. There's a couple of categories where it's actually low. Yeah. I mean, I mean, this is super interesting. I think, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at it right now. It's in the book. I mean, this is something that I think can certainly scale to sub-Saharan Africa. So I'd love to see if we can actually take this model to more frontier markets because I, I do like this a lot. Okay. So you, so you broke it up into North Africa, GCC. What is that third region you said? So Levant is, you know, uh, basically Lebanon, Jordan, Syria, uh, and the Palestine, Palestinian territory. So it's, it's kind of like the, the northern part of the Gulf, yeah. Hmm. Okay. And so that, I mean, so would you rank it basically, would, would that be number three? Would it be GCC, North Africa, and then that region as like attractiveness of business, attractive of investment? You almost have to, I did it kind of wholesale for the, for the purpose of the book, but, but there's, a big, there's a big difference between even adjacent countries. You know, obviously there's some yeah, conflict reason, uh, regions or, or countries that would really not uh, do well on the scale. Um, so it's really not, I wouldn't really lump it together by sub-region. It was just kind of as a whole, really. So I think it, it needs a little bit more of a due diligence exercise in terms of depending on the market you're in and depends on the sector you're in. Yeah. Uh, well, also, yeah, it depends on what your appetite for risk is also because like we, we did an episode on the podcast a couple months ago about some of the, some of the more fragile states and conflict zones, specifically in Africa. Um, and there are actually a lot of, opportunities in a place like South Sudan right now um, that entrepreneurs are executing against because there's still the proliferation of, of mobile devices. And so there's, there's, you know, where 
before the whole lockdown, we have our studio in this building called the Institute of Peace up the road. And they do an accelerator of, you know, tech for good, tech for peace. And there's many, many solutions. One of their companies um, was a missile alert system that's able to instantly detect when a missile is fired and sends an automatic text through SMS and USSD rails to everyone who signs up. And so Mark Cuban actually just put a million dollars into that business. So point being, like even with the conflict zones, the advantage you have there is not a lot of international talent and entrepreneurs are focused on those regions. And so there are opportunities for people to go after that, you know, they're, they're going to be the only player actually attacking those opportunities. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting you say that because I think sometimes when you, you're in a market that's comfortable, you don't have to kind of go out of your way to, to create something so innovative. Uh, you know, I live in South of Spain and life is good. So, you know, you find like, nobody wants to do online delivery of anything, right? Because you don't really need it. You, there's no traffic. There's, uh, it's nice to go and, you know, and then there are places where it's, you know, you have traffic and, and, uh, and it's challenging to get around. And then you have like these like very innovative solutions being rolled all over the place. And uh, so I think sometimes it's some of these conflict zones or disadvantaged place actually have an advantage in the sense that they're, they have no choice but to create something that's like a shortcut because otherwise life life sucks. And then the other thing is that, I, and sometimes those places lend themselves much better to the to the to, to other emerging markets, being perhaps you know the larger part of the world, right? So if you invent a solution around cash and delivery, then you're a lot more able to penetrate you know all of Africa a lot more so than let's say Uber uh, in the U.S. That's building for not the lowest common denominator, but kind of the more premium market. We saw it in the Middle East. Uber acquired Kareem last year or so. And for the, for those who don't know, Kareem was just a, a ride-sharing app in, in for the Middle East region, right? Yes. Yeah. So they basically, right before Uber came into the region, they saw the opportunity and they, they did an MVP in, in six weeks and uh, were up and running and knew that their only chance to compete with Uber once Uber comes in is to be more localized. Given their understanding of the nuances of the region, uh, they understood the need for cash and delivery. They understood the need, the, the challenge around address system or lack thereof, uh, certain kind of behavior in, in Saudi Arabia, um, and just very minor kind of uh, tweaks, if you will. Uh, some of them were not so minor, like cash and delivery, and, and that's. But then there were subtle things that they had to implement, and when when finally Uber came, they quickly realized that, you know, these guys have figured it out and, and that's where the acquisition was. And that's kind of the, the, the one thing that I think a lot of the folks who say, you know, copycats, that, that label is really, you know, if it's, if it's meant to discredit those models, uh, it's an unfair statement because they underestimate how much it goes into adapting to a local market. Um, they, they underestimate that how much execution needs to happen when you have all these challenges. It's not like taking something in the U.S. In the US and just copy-paste to the region. There are a lot more challenges that are not in the U.S. So that's, you know, that's another, that's, I think that's, that speaks volume to how uh, these companies, you know, to credit to these companies and then to the point of now, are they able to cross over 
Uh, there's a, a really interesting a new business called uh, Swivel out of Egypt. I don't know if you heard of them. No. So they, they're kind of like the, the Kareem or the Uber for microbus, right? For group transportation, uh, especially for long distance, uh, given that it would be a much more affordable and, and uh, you know, it lends itself to a more lower income demographics. Uh, they've started to actually quite expand quite a bit in Africa. And that's an amazing story. They, I think they raised about 20 million or so. Um, and uh, it's an amazing story of how a, a, a solution built into emerging markets can actually lend itself to, to, to other emerging markets even better uh, to, than you know, something that's coming, up, coming out of Silicon Valley, for example. Yeah, no, I, I don't think it's fair to say or you know to kind of downplay the the copycat model because at the end of the day, it's very very hard. Like if you look at uh, if you look at Jumia, like Rocket Internet's whole model is is that right? Copy copy what's working in somewhere like the U.S. or Europe or wherever, and take it to an emerging market and replicate it. They burned so much money trying to make Jumia successful, and they did that because they didn't understand the local market. They didn't, like you can't have e-commerce if there's no infrastructure. You can't have e-commerce if most people aren't buying online. And so you can't just throw money and copy something and it be successful. There's, there's still a, a high level of difficulty, especially like in these markets, man. Like I have such respect for African entrepreneurs and for MENA region entrepreneurs because like, like you got to be tough as nails to operate in those markets. Like it, even, yeah, if you do get, even if you do get large customers, it's like they might just not even pay you you know, for services rendered. Yeah, I mean, uh, being at Souk, I, I know firsthand uh, there's a an edu- consumer education element. Um, and some of the things we take for granted, you know, um, when somebody, you know, customer doesn't get the package or, or that's, they assume that it's coming from from Souk when it was coming from a third-party marketplace, a seller. I mean, there's definitely an education into that and understanding how to make the, the right purchase decision and what to look for and, you know, things that we've been doing for a long time in the U.S. Uh, mm-hmm. Kind of let that customer catch up, so to speak. Put, putting this whole book together, you have, you have an interesting, interesting perspective right now in the region. So let's talk about like what specific sectors or what specific opportunities that you're like, this is the next thing. This is where VC is going. This is where the market's going. It's like, what, what, what's going on? What's going on, Amina? Yeah, I mean, one thing I would like to touch on as well, uh, um, if you're interested, is, is kind of some of the challenges uh, in, the, in the ecosystem. Yeah, itself. for sure. So some of that, uh, you know, there were obviously a lot of findings and some of them may obviously vary by, by market, but, but also uh, are similar to what, what's happening in other parts of the world. Uh, but one key finding, one key challenge in the region has been uh, the lack of, of, a, of a unified market, if you will, somewhat, somewhat similar to the European Commission. So imagine if in the States you had to literally incorporate every time in a, in a new state, right? So you had to have 50 incorporations and you had to have 50 offices and each, each state would, have, would require you to have a license and you have to go through the process and hire a lawyer in each state. It becomes very difficult to scale. And that's exactly what's happening in the region. So in spite of the fact that there's one common language, one common culture, history, one dominant religion and, and, and so much in common that lends itself well uh, for these companies to scale, you know, in one stroke, um, there are those barriers. 
and to the extent that they can be removed, uh, perhaps on an Arab League level or, or even, uh, you know, starting with a few of the bigger countries and then kind of building that cooperation uh, that makes it easy for these companies to cross over uh, and the flow of goods and the flow of talent and, and, and so forth, um, that, would, that would make a huge difference because then there's no ceiling, right? And you, there's no friction. It just, you can just kind of scale indefinitely. So that's one that was key. Uh, and that might, be ha- that might be happening in Africa. I mean, the African Union is moving forward. I mean, but again, like on paper is very, very different than what you're talking about, which is like, what does the actual implementation look like from a policy standpoint, from ease of doing business across the region standpoint? And so that's really the question. It's less about what the policymakers can, can talk about and what they can do and more about what they can actually you know, follow through and implement. Yeah, and I think maybe the baby step is to start, you know, co- collaboration between some, you know, a couple countries and kind of get that model working between you and Saudi. I know there's some cooperation, um, but it's something that's definitely, you know, if it, if it works in, in Europe, it would work even better uh, in the Middle East and North Africa, uh, just given so many dynamics that, that are, that will make this model work. Some of the other things that were interesting, you know, especially if you compare it to U.S. Uh, in the Middle East, you know, you you have a lot of costs that you that you pay for. Uh, you have to pay for office, you know, in a year in advance. Uh, there's visas, license, and they're very expensive. And you often, even though there's no tax per se, you end up paying this anyway. Where in the U.S., you get to write off, uh, you know, unless you're profitable, you, you don't pay taxes. So I think there's some disadvantage around that. Obviously, as we talked about uh, just just now, there is a big drop into, into Serious C, if you will, right? So there's a big... Uh, funding gap uh, at some point where it's very difficult to get the 50 or 100 million after the initial kind of run. And then there's some, um, you know, there's some definitely things like insolvency law, bankruptcy. Uh, these are outdated. Uh, some of the industries are are still operating with outdated regulations. You need approval for online promotions as an e-commerce business. Every time you you have a promotion which slows you down and it's actually a disadvantage compared to international players who can, you know, have a more faster uh, real-time promotions and, and, and so forth. Uh, things like, um, you know, there are things like um, uh, if you think about the thing, data and, and just um, there's transparency and data lack, lack lacking in the region and in different sectors. So I think that's also hurts both the local players to make assumptions and projections, but also makes it difficult for international companies to do business in the region because it's, you know, they don't have full transparency and visibility into the region. Uh, so there's a lot of things that came up in the findings and obviously it depends on the market. Um, it depends on the sector and so forth, but these were some of the most common ones, And I think probably you can relate to it in Africa and other emerging markets that have some of this. Uh, uh, but one thing that became obvious is that uh, while there's great intentions on the policymaking side and the entrepreneur side, there's a little bit of a disconnect, right? There's not enough collaborative uh, effort, uh, obviously some, some places more than others. But what I've seen is that it's almost like a, um, not a fully engaged collaboration you know they may put a, a policy that they're think, considering launching too last minute and not publicized enough and not in English 
right? And when you have expats and a lot of CEOs coming, you know, or international, they're not going to get it, right? They're not going to understand it, translate it quick enough, and it becomes washed out, right? And then it, it gets released and everybody freaks out. And, but, you know, and then also the, the entrepreneurs need to be more proactive and need, need to be more responsible. And, and especially in very cutting edge uh, sectors, fintechs and so forth, they need to kind of play a more of an educator role, right? Like a consultant role where they're telling the, the policymakers kind of where they see this the industry going. So I think that tight net is missing sometimes and it, uh, it creates friction, it creates kind of, um, surprises, if you will, and, and, and may lead to, you know, policies that get implemented and then have to be recorrected. And it creates a, a, an, an unhealthy fluidity in the, in the regulations that, that adds an element of uncertainty. Um, we, you know, and, and that's not healthy, right? Because it's hard to plan a business if you don't know if in your, in your sector, the government will step in and compete with you, if if the law is going to change tomorrow and, and so forth. So it, it just makes it a little bit more uh, difficult, both for the entrepreneurs and then for the investors, right? Because it, treat, it increases the risk factor uh, involved. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think at the end of the day, what needs to happen in these regions is it's a matter of how can you bring down the risk for investors? And, and also, I think that what the bankruptcy law that you mentioned is that is that basically the company goes bankrupt and then the entrepreneur is actually personally liable, right? Yeah, is that it. Yeah, I mean, too many governments are are afraid that uh, that the bankruptcy is a kind of like a fake attempt for the entrepreneurs to uh, to not pay taxes or, or 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 run away, and then what what it creates is is obviously it stifles uh, the the appetite for risk taking and innovation. So the, to your point, exactly. Yeah, they're personally liable, and they have to, they have to leave the country or, or flee away. Jeez. Ugh. Yeah. Okay. Well, that, I mean, that is something that definitely has to change. Then. So. Yeah. But, okay. Let's let's go positive. Let's flip back to positive. So, let's talk like what what you know after after putting this book together. Like what what sectors in your, are standing out in your mind as like, this is it. Yeah, so this, I mean, the second is, is that what we're seeing is a lot more. Uh, startups are coming in and kind of filling the gaps where, where government uh, have not been able to address some of these challenges, right? So whether it's infrastructure or, or education uh, or even telemedicine. So there's a lot of um, uh, opportunities. So I, you know, basically I categorize them in three categories. Um, one is the copy and localized model, uh, which has historically been um, the most viable, the most uh, active uh, kind of model, which is, you know, the souk and the Kareems of the world uh, coming in, taking a proven formula from, from US or Europe and adapting it to that region, right? So it's, it happened um, in few sectors, but then it will, it will expand across the board into other areas. Um, the, the neat thing about this model is that investors are willing to, to fund it because they see what happened with, with Souk and Karim and others, and they see that if you come in and there's something that's proven elsewhere, the risk factor is, is lower, and all you have to do is adapt it, and if you're the right team to, to kind of run with it and they feel confident that you have what it takes, then they, they can see how this can scale quickly. So, the, so investors are, willing, are backing those models uh, pretty easily. Um, and if you look in the region, you know, that basically I would say that 
you know, now that the, the last kind of 10 years were all about getting people online. Uh, now I, I think it's about 70% uh, online penetration. Then the next 10 years or so is about getting them to pay online, right? Um, so that's, I think we're going to see a lot more services across all the, across the board and uh, in those models, right? Something proven in the U.S., adapted to the region or, or Europe or, or wherever. And then the second type of model is the local problem response model, where there is a, a, an inherent problem in the region that's not elsewhere, that, and then those entrepreneurs see it and have a, a novel solution for it. Um, you know, so it could be open banking. You have a, a huge segment that's unbanked uh, in places like Egypt and North Africa and so forth. So I think we're going to see some solutions around that that's going to that's gonna be very unique uh, to that part of the world. Um, I think property and real estate is a big play in, in the region. So we're going to see some uh, solutions around that as well that are pretty innovative. Uh, one thing that is definitely a gap, uh, which is that Arabic content, uh, which accounts for about almost 5% of the total uh, population in the world, is only about 1% on, uh, you know, of all content online is, is Arabic. So I think there's going to be a gap into or, or a jump into that to fill that gap. Um, and then finally, true innovation uh, model, I think there's still room for cutting edge um, technologies, whether it's AI or machine learning or blockchain and so forth. But there has historically has been about a five year lag between the Middle East and then places like US and China. Um, and then the challenge is that if you're a local entrepreneur, you know, it's gonna be more difficult for you to get uh, the, the funding from a local player who hasn't seen this model replicated somewhere else successfully. And yet, what you might be building is a global solution if you can kind of get the money and get that initial initial uh, kind of head start. Uh, there's a company called, out of Egypt called Instabug that have done that. They they've actually built a, a globe. I don't know if you're familiar with them. They is, built that, some, is that is that Omar's company? Yes. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. So I mean, what's interesting about them is that they didn't get the funding initially out of Egypt, uh, at least the, the the bulk of it, but then they built a global uh, platform. Right. So it was kind of they almost had to go to Silicon Valley to get something that they couldn't get back home because it was a novel, too advanced, too kind of innovative for, for the local investors who didn't see it, who couldn't really, you know, hedge their bets if it's going to work or not. Hmm. Uh, so these are some obviously things have changed quite a bit. I think there are certain industries that with, with COVID and so forth that may be more ripe, uh, others more disadvantaged. Um, you know, obviously with the Gulf, there's a big tourism uh, landscape. And it'll be interesting to see if they can kind of re readapt their tourism uh, by having kind of safe travel, safe vacationing, whatever you call it, uh, kind of positioning in the world uh, that, that they're the, the safest place to go to, right? Uh, by having all these uh, innovative uh, testing uh, slash combating uh, the, the, the coronavirus and, and therefore uh, able to attract more tourists in the future. I don't know. Uh, but I think it'll be interesting to see how, how things play out. The, the, the neat thing is that a lot of these, at least with the Gulf, it's, it's a very digital world. Um, so I think it's by definition, it's more resilient for crisis, right? Where some of the North African countries that haven't been as 
uh, digital, at least in terms of the services, not necessarily social media, but in terms of actual businesses providing services and products online, uh, it's going to be a lot more challenging. Yeah. Well, I think this is waking up a lot of ministers across Africa to saying, shit, we need, we need ICT infrastructure. We've been really, really slow on that. So I think that is certainly going to accelerate. Um, something interesting you said there. So 1% of all online content is in Arabic. That's yeah. wow. So interesting. I mean, that, that's interesting for us. We, um, we've expanded across Africa with syndic- radio syndication partners and digital media syndication partners, but it's actually surprisingly expensive to have good, consistent translation into local languages there. Um, I'm currently trying to do a, a, a um, get into Ethiopia with an Amharic translation, but it's expensive. Wow. It's really, it's, it's surprisingly expensive. Um, so yeah, maybe we go to, maybe we go to the Middle East. Maybe we go to the Middle East. You have 400 million uh, audience. So it's, a, you know, it's quite substantial. Right. <laughs> well, you also, mm-hmm. so you also said, you also said that there's a gap in series C funding. I actually think that if they're at that stage, they should maybe consider exiting just from the perspective of like, it opens up so much liquidity into the ecosystem and those exits are what make the case for the formation of series C funds. And so, I I mean, I'm not sure if there are any specific companies or startups you had in mind that are at that stage, but I would, I would actually lean on the side of figuring out how do they, how do they exit so they can recycle back into the ecosystem. I mean, that's assuming of course you have a kind of an acquisition, uh, party. Yeah. Yeah. But then also there are some entrepreneurs, I think that, that have big, big vision for themselves where they don't want to kind of stop, stop mid track and then see this as a global company and so forth. I think Omar is one of them, for example, you know, and, uh, Obviously, in the U.S., Facebook has been offered an exit uh, quite uh, uh, quite some time back, and they, and they turn it down. So I think it also depends on your own projection as an entrepreneur of where you can go and how big this can be, and obviously what fa- what valuation you're getting. Most likely, if you have if you're really ambitious, you're not you're not going to be impressed by any valuation uh, that comes in mid- midway before the business has uh, really scaled up. So. But I think it's and, 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 and I get that. Trust me, I get, I get that perspective for sure. I get that. You know, there, there, there's two sides of the coin. So. Definitely one option. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I am going to open up the questions. I actually have one question. Hey, Andrew here. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to go deeper into the world of the global startup movement, apply to join our online membership community at globalstartup.tv where you'll gain access to live Q&As with some of our amazing guests, connect with a highly vetted community of globally-minded entrepreneurs, and gain access to our comprehensive library of courses and training on how to build startups and do business anywhere in the world. Hope to see you there.